Now, will you please welcome to the stage our guest moderator, Will Gompertz, arts editor of the BBC. So starting with Michael Craig Martin, uh, a well-known and very brilliant artist in my view, but also an, a teacher, a lecturer at Goldsmith College in the 80s when art in Britain kind of took off. It's where the YBAs come from. It's where Matt Collishaw came from. So I want to sort of tease part of that conversation out as well about that moment in time and why what happened happened and then what happened subsequently. But to begin with, Michael, let's talk a little bit about your work and where it came from. Uh, can we have a slide up, please? Well, this is a uh, work of mine called An Oak Tree, which is, I suppose, the best-known single work that I've ever done. It was done in 1973, and it consisted of a glass of water on a, a glass shelf, and accompany it is a text, an interview with myself, in which I claim to have changed it into an oak tree and that it is, in fact, an oak tree and not a glass of water, despite appearances. So that's a conceptual work of art? Yeah, I think you could truly say it was a conceptual, a conceptual work of art. The, the next slide is, is, the, is the text, yes, which is in the form of a, a discourse uh, between uh, me and a viewer, the, the believer and the skeptic, so that all the questions about what, what it might be, uh, is it or isn't it? And then, of course, the wonderful thing about the work is I can't absolutely prove that I did it, but then again, nobody can prove I didn't. <laughs> the idea of that conversation between yourself is an idea I think Mondrian once did uh, very early on when he was trying to discuss his work and trying to explain it. And then, of course, Duchamp had this great thought his art was a game between I and me. Were both those artists quite influential on your thinking with that work? Y yes, both of them. Uh, many artists were, uh, have tried to address... It's really addressing the question of what is the most... What is the essence of art? If you strip away everything, what do you come down to? And different artists have come down to different ideas about what that might be. And for me, it obviously came down to a question of belief. That if you... Art is, a, is like poetry. If you don't allow it to, uh, to work for you, it won't work for you. Mm. And so you have, to, you have to give yourself over to it, it seems to me. And, that, and so no matter what something is, if you're prepared to let it be in, this tr in its transformative nature, then it, will, then it can do its little, its little job. But in a conceptual work of art like that, Michael, what is, where is the art? Is it in the idea, the concept, or is it in the execution? Well, of course, that is discussed in the text where I say, no, it's not the concept, no, no, it is actually the oak tree. That's the work if of art. If you're in any doubt, ladies and gentlemen. It is the work, that is the work of art. Your work then moved on. Yes, I, I mean, I've always been interested in, the, in questions about the essence of things, so I, the, this was about the essence of art itself, and then I moved on. We're going through my entire life history in about four images. So there's the, yes, there's a, a painting. This is a painting from uh, in the, within the last ten years, um, and I mo moved from using uh, real objects to using images of objects, and to and so the of tr uh, essentially trying to, from from my own point of view, to try to find out to to kind of explore what was the essence of painting. The simplest, the simplest images, the simplest colours, the simplest construction of a picture. But, yeah, you could argue, if, 
if you go down that road, you end up with the all-over monochrome canvas, or you end up with the primary colours. The sort of work that the artists were exploring, I suppose, in the early 20th century. Yours has got a sort of this fauvist, really highly coloured feel to it. It's not, it doesn't look particularly simple. No, but my, my thought was that uh, if... It, there's a, the, there was a modernist idea that geometry was more was more was the essence of form, mm. and I think objects are the essence of form, and that the essence of every of everything in life is to do with the things we make to to make our lives possible. So all of the things I do are just things that we use every day, and I'm trying to I'm, and I'm trying to claim them as has been even more essential. Uh, you know, I feel like like somebody invent. Uh, you know, in, in uh, early man invented the bowl before he invented the circle. Right. And so that's essentially my objects thought, uh, are more important than shapes. I th I think to, that when th when uh, everything comes out of practicality in the end. And the next image. Uh, the next one. I've done a, a lot of uh, very big uh, installation works, uh, painted images on the wall. I've done dozens of them all over the world. Uh, this is one in Germany in the about 1997, 98. Um, uh, there, there were uh, ten rooms, ten colors, images in every room. This work has humor to it. Well, of course, whenever it's possible to have humor, I always think it's a good idea. I mean, it's it's easy, you know. I, the, the one of the reasons why I think people like the oak tree is because it is very humorous. It says something very serious, but it does it in a humorous way. It's much harder to make a humorous painting. But if, if you install it in such a way, you can, then you can play. You can play on scale. I try to use all of the things that that art has going for it: scale, color, image. All of, all of those simple things, drawing, all the, these most simple things, and try to use them in a naked way. It's like, it's like being a magician and showing you what the trick is, and you're still amazed by the trick. How would you des describe your art, Michael? Because some might look at an image like that and think pop art. Others might look at an image like that and think conceptual art. You could even argue surrealism. Would you put yourself in any of those boxes? I would never put myself in any of those boxes, no. I mean, I, I, I think in, there's, a, there's, a, there's a kind of discourse about um, uh, this painting and then this conceptual art, and the two are in as though they're in competition with each other. And I don't think of my paintings as less conceptual than the oak tree. So I, can't, I don't see that as a proper line of distinction between one thing and another. But w c can you make a distinction between those two works? Well, I mean, well, obviously, one is one is embedded in the traditional language of Western art in painting, mm. and and that carries a whole history with it, and all sorts of things. Which in my early work, I was trying to get away from. I mean, I saw myself with the oak tree. I I kind of hit ground zero, and then I thought, well, now I'm going to reconstruct art. So I started from drawing, and drawing became painting, and so so it's a, like a reconstruction from nothing. And what is the point you're making with an artwork like this one? I never think of myself as making a point. So. <laughs> it, I think you'll find oh, it's a visual communication, Michael. You're not going to get away with that. Uh, let's see the next slide then. Okay. <laughs> uh, this is another uh, giant installation. This was in 
Valencia, and it was in a museum that used part, also had parts of church in. And because it was Spain, and my favorite artist, one of my favorite artists is Velázquez. This was I painted my version of Las Meninas. I don't know if people know the painting Las Meninas, but it's a painting by Velázquez of uh, of himself painting the uh, the court. And uh, so mine, I've uh, the, the 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 in this painting, the f the fire extinguisher is the artist, and the sunglasses is the princess. The um, uh, the uh, pencil sharpener is the dwarf, and the belt is the dog. <laughs> you got that, everybody, crystal clear. <laughs> but is it purely an homage to Velasquez? Well. I think artists have all often taken works done by other artists, and I mean, when you're an artist, what you do is you create a language mm -hmm. of uh, for the way in which you uh, describe the world. Mm. So, if an, if you take another artist's work, what you do is you take their work and you pull it into your language, and then put it back into the world, but through your own language. So that's essentially what I've done. Does that make sense to you, Matt? Yeah, I wasn't aware of this work that Michael had made, but I've also made a version of this same work, Les Meninas by Velasquez. And the work I made was quite different. I, but probably says something about the approach that I've got to the artwork I made. So generally you're used to looking at reproductions of old art in books yeah. before the digital age would just be absorbed with them turning over the pages. And I was fascinated by this painting because it is about the idea of looking at something and be becoming part of an exchange that's happening when you're looking at it. It's almost like a trap that the artist has built that you fall into and you can't quite pull yourself out of. This painting is in the Prado in Madrid, and so I decided what I was going to do for this particular art project was to fly blindfold from my flat in London to the Prado in Madrid. I'd then have the blindfold removed for three minutes when I would experience this painting, which I'd never seen in the flesh before, then put the blindfold on and fly back to London, take it off. So the only thing that I'd ex experienced visually in all that time was this three minutes in front of this masterpiece. And it was partially because I think when you get involved with a work of art that has that level of illusionism and the conceptual apparatus that's pulling in you in that you're kind of like a hostage to it you're held ransom in the way that people are taken and held hands hostage and blindfolded and become like uh, subjected to this to this thing and so i was also kind of paying a homage to this thing and being involved in this visual optical game that it was presenting Not it becomes an icon is what you're saying yeah, I mean, and you also have this, this the uh, Stendhal syndrome, which is people experience when they're in front of great iconic works of art, and they can't really uh, experience what's in front of them because the experience is so overwhelming. And it's often what I feel when I'm in front of a museum of an iconic art piece. You know so much about the Mona Lisa, I guess, is the classic icon. You've seen it so many times when you get in front of it, it's just, what should I be feeling in response to this thing that I've seen so many times before? And so what did you think? You had, you had, your th what, you had three minutes unblindfolded yeah. in front of Las Maninas. Yeah. What did you think? What, what was your response? I was quite disappointed, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it's a massive painting. It is. Which is a good thing. It's like so, hang on, how many people know this high. painting? 
quite a few. Okay, <laughs> would you just describe the painting very briefly, just from a, a setup, the characters okay. we've got in it? Basically, you are looking at a painting which appears to be of a group of people. They're the courtiers to the king, the king's daughter, the dog, and a few other maids and servants, etc. And on the other side of the painting is Velasquez himself painting at a large canvas. So you're looking at this thing thinking, okay, it's just another painting of a group of people. And then you're thinking, well, why is Velasquez, the guy who's painting it, also in the painting? So you're thinking, okay, well, he must be looking in a mirror to paint himself. So you must be in the place where the mirror is. And then you realize that so the painter Velasquez is actually painting the king and queen who are on the, in the place where you should be. And the courtiers and the daughter and the dog are all just gathered around watching this little event of the king and queen being painted. Right at the back of the room, there's a small mirror in which you can see the king and queen reflected. They aren't in the painting at all, other than this very uh, kind of murky reflection in the mirror. So the whole thing is this game where if, if we are the king and queen, then how is he seeing himself? Because he must be looking in the mirror. Therefore, we are a mirror that he's painting. And the kids and the courtiers are looking into the mirror. So it's like this game of impossibilities that you get yourself inside. It's easy to see why artists love this painting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it, it's a perfect play on the description of all the things that happen in art, and it's all played out so brilliantly in this picture. But Matt, well, you were disappointed by it. Because it's very, very sober. It's a, it is a conceptual game, and behind me, my guide who had taken me to Spain was like, wow, you should just see the painting of the Vulcan behind you, <laughs> which is a very visceral, passionate, emotive painting, where you do get a charge from looking at it. Les Manin has this particular painting. It's just very quiet yeah. and very... Um, it was a court painting, it looks like, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So that you don't get that fix that you're looking at. I mean, I, I, I had blinding light for perhaps the first 15 seconds and gradually the thing faded up till I could focus on it. That was quite, quite a... Why, why three minutes? Why not ten minutes? Why not one minute? I why? don't know. Three minutes is just kind of like... Um, the length of a pop record, probably the length of most of the videos that I make. It's like an attention span kind of thing that I think works quite well. And if you say two minutes sounds a bit weird, four minutes sounds weird, three sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what did you make from it? I, I made a video that had uh, two different images, one of me going to the Prado, one of me returning from the Prado, and in the middle was what I saw or... Um, a simulation of what I saw. What which did was, you see? Which was a very, very bright light, and gradually the uh, um, figures appearing out of the bright light, remaining there and then disappearing. So it's a film? It's a film with three different projections. Right. Yeah. Okay, well, Matt, to give the audience, those of you who don't know Matt's work, a bit of a hint about it, can we just look at a couple of pieces now? Well, I... I was brought up very religiously, I mean, really strictly, like a couple of hours, two, three hours a day on a Sunday and a Wednesday, uh, hymns and prayers and stuff, really quite intense. And the, the, the most pertinent image out of religion, of course, is the Christ on the cross. And I think a lot of the things that are bound up in that image are things which I later carried on using, not because I'm particularly religious or have any, I'm behoven to that image in any way. But it has beauty and cruelty and seduction and morality and it has manipulation. And all of those things are going on. It's not just about appearance, it's about the games that it's playing with the people that are looking at it. 
and the responsibility that they have once they accept that this thing is suffering and mm-hmm. has sacrificed himself for you. So the power of that... Do you, do you in, believe in it? In the actual... Well, in the well, it, resurrection? It, it, it resurrection, Christ, God, Christianity? <clears throat> no. Okay. No. But I, I think it's quite thrilling the way that certain stories and images become so powerful, perhaps because they have... Um, something that appeals beyond what they were initially referring to, the crucifixion, the, the, the young man dying on the cross, suffering, I think has retained its potency because it has other things going on in there which are, co- which are kind of quite engaging. Are you, are you, are you a, a, a romantic, Matt? Yes, probably, I think, yeah. But cynic as well. <laughs> yeah, cynical <laughs> yeah, romantic. Yeah. Hard to be around. <laughs> Well, I'm only guessing. I'm only guessing. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. I will be after. <laughs> the next work. And this was like a large-scale video projection, which was at the Roundhouse last summer, and it's very big. It's like eight meters high, and like thirty meters in diameter. So it's a huge, translucent curtain which you can walk through, and projected onto it all the way around is a film that I made, which is created pretty much in. Um, computers by uh, programs like CD Max and Maya, which are software manipulation programs. The first thing I did was get some rotting flesh, fish and various other animals. I put them on my roof and as they rotted and had flies come on them, I photographed them in like time lapse. So you weren't there first, you just had a camera set up? Well, I go out and click every hour or something like that. Then I imported those to these programs and had them manipulated. And basically it's a dystopian world where it's quite a tropical environment, but these flowers that grow in there have various diseases, syphilis and gonorrhea, usually sexual diseases which grow on the flowers. And then um, it corrupts them and they die. This is a cynical part of your romanticism, I assume. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, originally I did some of these pictures because I came from um, the poems of Baudelaire yeah. from the Fleur de Mal and the Venal Muses and I was quite caught up with his um, dark romanticism I thought and the sexual delete diseases were all part of that which I just found quite intoxicating and of course it, it ties in quite nicely now with the idea that the environment is toxic because of the way that we've mishandled the planet but also for me was about making visual images <coughs> that somehow reflect the prurient and pathological we need we have for more information via the news magazines and the internet and whatever for very dark material that we really don't need to live by it's information that i think is appeals to us for whatever reason and flowers generally they evolve to a certain shape to be beautiful to attract insects or birds or whatever they, they they're designed to to attract what they need so Taking that to its logical conclusion, I was making flowers that were then um, embellished with horrible pustules and diseases because I think we're acquiring this pathological taste for very dark subject matter. Which then, I assume you're saying, somehow morphs its way into our souls and gives, makes us diseased and corrupted. Well, yeah, I think we are. I'm not sure if maybe we're all corrupted anyway in the first place and that we've always wanted, we always have an interest. It's obvious why we should have an interest in death because it's coming to all of us. I think that's quite natural. But there are other more sinister 
um, images and stories out there that we also want to get hands on. And maybe it's a natural thing for us to be interested in that. I'm not sure how good or bad it is, but I find it quite engaging. Clearly, clearly. The whole, and there's a, there's a whole gothic side to that, isn't there? I mean, it seems to me there's that. Well, the, yeah. Well, the gothic is that kind of, particularly in gothic literature, it's the thrill of horror in the way it's like you enjoy the horror, right? Mm. Maybe not so much in gothic art when it came out. Gothic literature was a bit, little bit later. And that whole thing was enjoying that frisson of something that terrified you, which I try and... Which is, sits quite well with what I'm trying to do. So occasionally I'll incorporate certain like gothic shrines or gothic architecture into work that is uh, digital, basically very contemporary. And, and Michael mentioned it, and I wanted to ask you about that as well because that's a huge work. How important is scale, and how important, from your point of view, is playing with scale? I mean, did that need to be that size in your mind? I, I think I remember being at college and overhearing a conversation with Michael and somebody else. And they were saying, scale, yeah, that's the big one. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so what, should it be big or small or medium or whatever? So I got the idea that it was a question, but I never really got the answer for it. But obviously, I think it changes everything. It doesn't have to be big. I mean, sometimes, like the oak tree, it's like the, the humble mm. scale of it is something that... Yeah, the Brazilian artist, Silda Morelos, did that amazing work, which is a tiny little cross, which he puts in the corner of a massive room and has a great impact. Could be powerful for that reason, yeah. But I, th I think um, the, one of the things about um, uh, making something uh, that's really massive, like using all the rooms in a museum or like the installation that you did, is obviously you're creating an artwork in, in which one, the audience goes into the work. The audience is engaged in it in an entirely different way than in something that's hanging on a wall, mm. something that's small, something that, that's graspable in one's own space. They're, they're works that create a place, and the, and the audience kind of enters this place. Mm. And that seems to me to be something that's just fundamentally different about being able to do something on a gigantic scale. But when um, Matt was overhearing your conversation back in the mid-'80s, mm -hmm. Goldsmiths College, about scale, as, as you say, it goes both ways. What, what is, what is the, the point of it from, a, from a, an artist's viewpoint? Because for a long time, of course, people were quite limited in what they could and couldn't do as far as on a canvas and on, a, on stone was concerned, I suppose, within the context of putting work into an art gallery. And that's changed an awful lot. But why do you, why do you think it's such a centrally important thing to consider? Well, you, the, there's a sense in which each thing has its appropriate scale. I mean, it, the, when one thinks of a, a painting by Vermeer, they're all about this size, yeah. and they're unimaginable as something large. They, 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 their tininess is part of the magic that pulls you into this extraordinary little world that he gives to you, whereas there are other, other things which are immense, so if you if if you're you're a, it's what, what's interesting uh, with scale is I, I've done things I've done postage stamps, and I've done giant things sixty meters high. It's a question of what's appropriate for different. It's such an interesting idea. Is it when do you know when do you know what is the right scale for your idea or your artwork? At what point do you go? Yeah, that's it. It needs to be that size. Well, that's a difficult question because it depends. It depends on the s situation for each artwork. I mean, if you're presented with an opportunity, I mean, the, uh, I found myself because I like doing it. I'm presented with opportunities to make things on a very large scale. Right. 
I can't make something on a large scale if somebody doesn't give me the opportunity to do it because they don't automatically have a 60-meter wall around. And so I'm very depend I'm dependent on doing that. But other artists would never be invited to do such a thing because it wouldn't interest them. It would never occur to anybody mm -hmm. to ask them. Um, I, I, this thing at the, at the Roundhouse uh, was a very special occasion. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah I think... I'm not expert on this subject at all, but I think there's something, there's a middle range of scale where it's all to do with its relation to you and your your size. And when it's shifting a couple of feet, yeah. every inch is critical. When it gets over a certain size, once it becomes colossal, it doesn't really matter if it gets much, much, much bigger because the whole thing is already overwhelming. So in, in a sense, it kind of loses... Um, it's important. It's just it's just way bigger than you. But when it's the medium size, then it's more important the the kind of calibration of very small degrees. Now, I just want to ask you about 1988. Now, 1988 is of course a very famous moment in the British art world. It's when Damien Hirst held his freeze exhibition down in South East London. Matt had a work in the exhibition, which was a photograph of a bullet going into somebody's head, um, <laughs> romantically, gothically. Cynical again, in a way, Matt. Um, what happened at that moment? What happened in 1988? You were at Goldsmiths. You were at Goldsmiths. You, you, you all knew each other. You were a teacher, Michael. Uh, you were students. What happened in 1988, or around that moment in time, that was so combustible, so so combustible, and so and, and you know created this moment, which is you know we're still living through today. Um. Well, I mean, I can say from my own point of view, um, there was something very extraordinary about the timing and about the chemistry amongst a certain group of people. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was, it, you know, it's just one of those things. I, uh, I, I taught for a very long time, and I never saw anything happen that was quite like that, uh, where there were a, a lot of very, very uh, interestingly different creative people who were very engaged with each other's work. Mm. Everybody was interested, in, and you know uh, the other. Oh, so let's just go through the cast list. I mean, we've got we've got Matt, we've got Damien Hirst, we've got Gary Hume, Angus Fairhurst, Sarah, Sarah Lucas. Lucas. Yeah. Um, Michael Landy, Fiona Ray, yeah, goes on, yeah, Andy Galatria. Ian Damon I mean, it, it is extraordinary, uh, isn't it? Yes, I, uh, I did an exhibition uh, some, uh, a couple of years ago where uh, I invited people who'd been students of mine to be in the exhibition, and I couldn't believe it, but there were, I think there were 18 people in Freeze, and I invited 14 of them to be in the exhibition because 14 of them had become well-known. It must be a kind of unique situation. Matt, I'm going to ask you a very unfair question. How important was Michael to that moment? Absolutely crucial, I think, yes. I don't think it would have happened without him. I think everybody was very hungry anyway. Most of the people that were at that college, I think they were very bright and intelligent, but they didn't have A-levels a in history. They didn't have any qualifications academically to give them uh, the facility to get on in life. So they needed something because they weren't stupid people. And if they gone to any other art college, I think there's a myth that's fostered in a lot of those places that the artist's life is a romantic one mm. and that the art history books are closed and that you're getting on with the practice, but maybe 20, 30 years later, you might arrive somewhere of significance. But with Mike, it was absolutely from day one. 
get out and see that show at the Saatchi show, uh, Saatchi Gallery in Boundary Road, or go and see that thing at Carlson Schubert Gallery, what was on now, and think about that as the uh, the playing field that you're working on, and and you really should be making things that have the um, I don't know the the qualities that that world has that you have to be real that you uh, did, did it give you a confidence I mean that, that's what seems to strike me when you look at those the photographs from from that show there seems to be you know an amazing self confidence self possession in all those artists that, you know, what you'd call front almost. Yeah, I, th I think it's probably quite important that if you didn't have the confidence, then you should blag it anyway. <laughs> and that in, in itself was like a kind of an artistic gesture, if you could do it well and professionally enough. But it was quite important for you to be quite together with the image that you're projecting. But for sure, he gave... I mean, the first thing he probably did was undermine everybody terribly because the work that they'd arrived with originally was not quite up to it. And then you would build it up to a point where it was work that was... The, th the thing that, that Matt is describing is that many, in many art schools, the, the art school becomes a kind of closed world in itself. Mm. And it doesn't relate to the world that people go into. Mm. And very often there is no world that the art school relates to that's out there. It isn't just that it's not the one that you might get into. There, it doesn't actually be, extend beyond the doors of the school. So what we always tried to do at Goldsmiths was to, to show the students that there is a world for artists. There are mm. artists out there. There is a world. There is the possibility of being an artist. And you have to go, you have to go out and you have to find it. You have to look at it. You have to, if you want to be a participant in it, you have to, you have to feel like you're, part, like you're part of it. You have to try and relate to it. And that you can start doing... You, you, you can and, uh, and I think you should start to think about art in that way while you're a student because you're preparing yourself to go into, to, to go into a world which actually exists for you. And that was, uh, what, that was part of the thing that happened with the timing because there was a moment when there was suddenly an enormous interest in very young new artists. Mm -hmm. And suddenly there were these very talented people who were right there ready for this moment and who, whose work was, could already be understood within an existing framework beyond the school. And so what was it like living through that madness and mayhem, Matt, that suddenly there you were, you know, not far along out of school, suddenly being lauded by the art world, being in glossy magazines, being taken really seriously, and it's continued. I mean, what's that, what's that journey felt like? Well, I mean, for me, that the work that I made in that freeze exhibition, the bullet hole, it finished up in a crate outside the building, rusting and a rocking <laughs> until it was remade 10 years later. My trajectory wasn't quite as dramatic as that, which I'm kind of okay with. It's been a lot more gradual. And now I'm in a position where it's kind of better than it's ever been. And my prices have not gone through the roof, which puts me in quite a safe position when you get to um, tough economic uh, times like now I could just experience it um, more through artists like Damien who uh, obviously had um, a fairly meteoric trajectory and did, was it just well done mate or was it a sense of jealousy and thinking what's he doing I'm not doing I think like all jealousy and bitterness bitterness and jealousy you could uh, embrace them but 
I kind of know that they're no, they're not really healthy anyway. Anyway, and he's always we've always always been mates, and um, he's always been good to me anyway. He looks after me a little bit if I'm short. He's he's always been a great. He's al- I mean, he's always been a great supporter of his generation yeah. of artists, hasn't yeah. he? He's just a very great character and a very very funny man. So I don't think there'd be there's no reason why you want to cut him out of your life and see him as your enemy. It'd be, yeah. It's not widely re- recognised that Damien is probably the most generous person in the art world. And you know he do, he helps a lot of artists in the most respectful way possible by buying their work. Uh, he he does enormous amount of uh, uh, work with charities and everything. But he also I always think that one of the things that was a key thing that happened with Freeze was there was this group of people from Ghostmas. Everybody in Freeze was from Ghostmas because that was the only people he knew. By the second time he curated a next a next show and then the one after that, instead of keeping the group small. And close, which anybody else might have done. You know, you've got, you're onto this thing. You know, you want to protect it and don't let anybody else in on it. It was the opposite. It, every time, it was he pulled in different different people. So the group got bigger instead of getting tight. It got bigger, and so it created a world in which maybe there were 20 people benefiting from it in the first year. There were 50 people the second mm. year. 200 people. The third year, because it was it was it had this essential generosity, which I which I locate really in Damien. Looking back, we we know what happened before 1988 is called postmodernism. But what happened afterwards? How would you describe what we've seen in the last 25 years? How would I describe the last 25 years? Just 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 from a point of view of. <laughs> No, because that would take a long time. But I, I'm talking from an art history in point a, of view. In a nutshell. Just, just a sense a of, you a know, what, what, are, what, are, what, are the, what are the common denominators which you could identify which make it feel that that's a work which happened in that period? Because you know when we look back over time, it, it is possible to do that. Sorry, to, are you talking about the, the artwork or the actual art environment? I'm talking or? about the artwork, the, the works which have been produced over this period of time. How would you, if at all possible... Contain them within an area where there is commonality and common denominators, which makes them identifiable to this period. Right. Yeah. Very difficult thing to do because certainly the the artists that you were talking about that were under Michael at that kind of time they're very disparate. Yeah. Everybody had a different kind of practice and their ideas. They were different personalities, and they're all going out in different directions. It wasn't as though it was a movement in the old-fashioned sense. So I'd find it kind of hard to um, find a theme that... Yeah. Kind of I would say that was the characteristic right. of the period, really, mm. is that the, the, the age when there, was, when there were clear groupings of artists according to the nature of what they did, where you could say, he's a pop artist, he's a minimal artist, mm. he's a, you know, a, a realist painter, whatever. The, 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 none of these things hold anymore. There are no groupings in this kind of way. There are no movements in the same... So there's an incredible number of different kinds of things going on simultaneously. I mean, I always think for myself, I grew up in a period, you know, when when there was a very clear orthodoxy, and if you wanted to be a radical artist, you made a decision to be a radical artist and knew what the orthodoxy was. So you knew you knew what you had to do. It was, you know, you knew what you were up against. You couldn't do that today because not, there's nothing that will resist. Yeah. And so it, it makes no, the, there's it makes no the, door to push the, against. There's no door to push against because, uh, and also, and of course, that comes back to the fact that that art has become part part of normal culture. 
in the in general culture mm. in the way that the cinema or the literature or in Britain the theatre have been for years. Contemporary art was incredibly marginal mm. until the last fifteen or twenty years, and now it's taken a kind of cent- it's really a very central role. I mean, look. Why are we here? We would never have been invited in you know, the, the old days. To, we wouldn't be here now if it wasn't for this change in the role of art. Which brings us on to technology. Can we have, man behind the computer, a picture of the uh, Art Fund app, which is launched today, which uh, I confess I haven't played with because it was launched today. And I don't know if Michael or Matt have played with the app. Have you guys? I haven't, I haven't played with it, but I had a preview of it. Okay. And I have to say, it is, real, it is really an amazingly well-designed Really. What does it do? It, it allows you to locate every exhibition, every museum, everything in, in Britain. And it gives you the full information. It tells you where the place is, how to get there, what the opening times are. Uh, you, you can be in an area and you say, I'm going to be in this area. What's on in this area? It tells you what's on in that area. You say, I'm going to go from here to there. What's on the route? It tells you what's on the route. It is, it is about as good as, as you could get, I think, as far as something like that. But the thing about it, of course, from the point of view of this conversation, it's using technology. And that's another thing which has changed enormously since 1988, is that technology is now readily available and changing things dramatically. Matt, how important has it been for you and your art and the development of your career? There's like different sides to it, of course, because I use it in my practice, uh, pixels and the digitization of material, sometimes very emotive material, which we can then experience or re-experience through being like broadcast or sent down a telephone line in binary code. That fascinates me anyway, just on a practical level of getting things done it's mm. been totally revolutionary because if i'm editing a video or doing something with a magazine or whatever i can send them in a jpeg or a little film clip it comes back i say this needs changing and it just saves all that traffic going backwards and forwards to actually see something so it means you can make work a lot faster i think it's like probably the greatest transformation with an artistic if it is an artistic medium that's ever happened, I think. Is it an artistic medium? Well, I mean, there's something that we can use. Yeah. A mirror is not necessarily an artistic medium or a lens, but they were things that an mm. artist could use as tools in the past. And then you had a photography, which was a great innovation. But that took kind of almost 100 years before it became absorbed in, in, into the, the art from the uh, 1930s when it was invented to probably the 1920s when it became actually uh, recognized as, a, as an art um, well, I me- media. Yeah. yeah, that kind of thing, and the Russians. Mm. Whereas digital media, almost immediately, is being used by artists, and the flexibility of it and the ability to manipulate images and then disseminate what it is that you've made is just like something that's never happened before. And what about from a creative point of view, Michael, well, actually using the, the it to make that, work? Well, the thing that's re- amazing to me is that um, I got my first computer, I have to say an Apple computer, um, uh, v- quite early in the 90s, and I got it because of word processing, because I found out about cut and paste in word processing. And so, and, and I have to say, it completely revolutionized my ability to write because I was able to do it so easily on the computer. But that when I got it on the computer, I suddenly realized that that's exactly the same way I did my work. 
So then I transferred all my work into the computer and the cut and paste is what I've done. So I consider that virtually everything I've done for the last 15 years, I couldn't have done in the previous 15 years because I, I needed this technology, which I use in a very simple way, but it allows me such flexibility, such minute flexibility over tiny differences in things. I can try things out. You can try, make it red, make it blue, make it big, make it small, make it, turn it upside down, turn it sideways, do it twice, do it, save that drawing, save this drawing, have a hundred drawings for a single project rather than one. You know, it just is, I can, I mean, frankly, if somebody had asked me, and before there was a computer, what machine do you need? If I could have thought of the computer, I would have come up with it, because it's so ideal to me. What about the, I don't know, technology is a, a medium with which to enjoy art, to look at art, to look at art on the internet or on the television. Is that effective? Because our relationship with art, of course, is it being a unique object. That's part of the frisson of looking at it, um, part of the way you guys can make some money. What about the notion of net art? It's never really seemed to have caught on. Personally, I always like the idea that you go into a gallery, that's the temple where you go to contemplate and reflect on the artwork. There's a fashion in the 1990s for trendy European curators to make exhibitions in aeroplanes or toilets or wherever, and it was all very like vibrant and funny but for me I like the fact that the parameters are kind of limited you've got a white room with a gray floor and in that space you put something and then people come and they look at it and contemplate it it's doing a job for you when 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 Tate Modern was being developed during the 90s Mm. It was the period of the development of the of the internet, and and there was a lot of anxiety at the Tate about maybe we're building this giant museum at exactly the moment when nobody will ever want to come and see an object <laughs> again because they'll all look at them online. And the uh, mo- the most interesting thing about it is the complete opposite happened. Mm. The online gives people pre-information, it gives that people look things up, people find out about things, people are drawn to come there, and then and the, and never before have there been so many people who want to see the actual thing. Mm. It actually gives people a, the the I think the the digital thing gives people an interest in direct experience. Not take rather than take it away. Yeah, it's, it's not an, they want to give adi- up one addition. of the, it has it has its it, both things have their role and right. uh, one does not damage the other. I'm going to have to bring this conversation to an end because our time has run out. But please, a warm round of applause for Matt Collishaw and Michael Craig Martin. Thanks.